far as I know, we've never had any explosions at the men's retreat. <laughs> but who knows what the future holds? Because I know a few fellas that's going to be there that might make that happen. I am here to uh, encourage our men to fellowship with us at this year's retreat. Uh, it will be, at, as it said, at Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, the Mount Sequoia Lodge in Fayetteville, on the weekend of April the 8th. For, uh, for those brothers who have never attended, um, consider this. The first year I was there, I was a reluctant attendee, but I found out that each day had an unexpected blessing. And I encourage you to join us and see what blessings await, await you. The, um, for those of you that were born before, born after 1960, you can go to the website, westark.org slash the time for action. For the rest of you, you need to fill out this form, put it in the box in the foyer, but you'll also need one of these. Uh, do not let cost deter you. Uh, if that's a problem, note it when you sign up and let uh, note it on, on when you sign up and let the, let the Lord provide for you. Um, as we our van, we'll have vans going up on Friday evening on different schedules like we've had in the past. There'll be more, I'm sure we'll have more details on that when we get closer. But uh, please come and join us. We'd uh, love to have you. Thank you. Inns retreat looks like a blast. Okay. You chose wisely, Don. That was my line that I set him up with. I, <clears throat> I tried to convince him I wrote comedy for Hee Haw. Yeah. Anybody can write comedy for Hee Haw, but it's... Um, the, um, and what was that cutoff date for the electronic sign-up? Was it 1960? Is that... Uh, yeah. Well, and you know, the new app, if you go into the new app, that first block that says Connect... You'll find a place, uh, you'll find a section for upcoming events. You can go there. It'll take you right to it. That's the ease of that. And listen, I don't, you know, I don't care if you were born before or after 1960. Um, I've seen some of you on Facebook, and you're handling it pretty well. And, um, and, and you know, you need to confess if you're going to try to convince me that you were born before 1960, okay? So uh, it, it, we, everybody adjust to this. Do come to that men's retreat. It is going to be a blessing, and uh, I want to thank all the guys who are putting that together and making that happen. It could be also seen as part of our growing season that this is, um, this is one of the things that we do to encourage spiritual growth. And last week, uh, I appreciate your feedback from the sermon last week. It had to do with, with negativity and uh, Many of you came to me and you said, okay, we've identified some things here that we need to, 
that we need to work on, that I need to work on, that, that I want to work on as an as a individual, and things that we can work on as a group of believers. Well, good. Let's continue that work. And last week, the emphasis was on the negativity that surrounds us, and how that negativity is viral, and how it becomes a toxin. It becomes a poison and a detriment to spiritual growth and to church growth. And negativity can be transmitted like a virus. That people can pass that on to other people. That you can fill your environment, whether that environment is your family or your work culture or your church culture. People can fill that environment with negativity and it hinders and can even stop spiritual growth. And we have to have a a good defense, a healthy spiritual immune system. But what do we do about the negativity that comes from within? What do we do about the negativity that some of us often say, well, I come by my negativity naturally. What do you do then? If it's not coming from the outside and infecting you, but if it's coming from within, how do we manage it? There's a lot that could be said about this, but what I want to do today is I want to identify four causes of negativity. These certainly aren't the only ones, um, but these are four that I've drawn out because in my experience and based on what I see in, in Scripture and how it responds to people growing in Christ, these four causes are particularly devious because they start off as an impulse towards something good but sin as it often does warps that which is good and turns it into something negative one is the idea we're going to go back over these in detail that vigilance that being on our guard and being skeptical that that in and of itself is a virtue doesn't sound that bad does it but it gets warped Second, a type of uh, shielding and defense mechanism, deflector shielding, can actually turn into a source of negativity. The third thing is a pride in humility. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but again, this can start off as a good thing and it becomes something corrupted. And then the last is hanging on to hurt. Let's take a look at each one of those. The idea that vigilance is a virtue uh, comes from a very natural and good impulse that's going to help us survive. We talked last week about the difference between critical thinking and a critical spirit. We need critical thinkers. We need critical thinkers who help us in our um, advances as a society. We need critical thinkers in government, in technology, in medicine, because critical thinkers analyze things and they figure out why something works and why something doesn't work. And we learn from that and we grow. Critical thinking is a mental process. It's a process of reason. But a critical spirit takes that thinking process and warps it into a filter that sees the entire world as negative. Um, Jesus, for example, will tell his disciples that there is a place for this kind of caution. When he sends them out in Matthew 10, for example, and he tells them that he's sending them out 
like sheep among wolves. He's alerting them to the danger, and he wants them to be aware. So the other animals that he will use to describe their approach is he says, I want you to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And you see in what Jesus is saying, you see a balance. Enough wisdom to be aware of the concern and be aware of the danger, but the peacefulness represented by the dove that does not warp that into a mean-spirited or an angry or a detrimental and destructive presence. Too much of this kind of caution or vigilance, too much of it is not wisdom. It leads to generalizations. There's an old saying that to a man with a hammer, everything's a nail. When we go out and we start looking for problems, the next thing you know, everything out there is a problem. If you ever grew up hearing um, sermons about false teachers, it can be a bit... um, it can be a bit worrying because at the end of it, you're not sure if anyone is anything but a false teacher. The more that, uh, that, that I look into that, I realize, my goodness, everybody could be a false teacher. How do we know that anything's true? That's taking it all too far. It, when, uh, when John, the Apostle John, was writing to the uh, churches in Revelation, <clears throat> he warned the Ephesian church that they needed to balance because he commended them that they hated the false teachings that destroyed lives and were not healthy. But he asked them to return to their original attitude of love. In their fight against those that were wrong, they had lost the attitude of love. They had become as bad as that which they were opposing. We have to keep this balanced. Too much of this vigilance and worry will cause us to have a generalization so that we see um, all preachers are liars. All men are this. All women are that. All elders are this. Everybody at church. All the people in the church are hypocrites. When you start noticing those, those absolute statements, all and everyone, and I don't trust anyone until, that could be your warning sign. That what started out as maybe a healthy vigilance or a healthy critical thinking has now become a type of paranoia and negativity. A generalization that leads to an internal negativity that chances are you're starting to spew it. The cure for this is Philippians 4. In Philippians 4, uh, Paul is addressing the Philippian church and he's telling them, that uh, they need to learn to rejoice, that they need to learn to uh, uh, rejoice in the Lord. And, and, and he names it in chapter 4 that there are, are two women, Uodia and Syntyche, who have come into conflict, and it's tearing up the church. And the way they're going to get around that is they're going to have to change their filter. They're going to have to start seeing things differently. It's a good bet that Uodia and Syntyche had started to see one another as the problem. So when you come to verse 8, you hear Paul say, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true, 
what is honorable, what is right and pure, what is lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. On one level, you could read this as stay away from filthy movies and trashy books. And sadly, that's about the extent of how this has been used. This, this becomes the proof text for not going to R-rated movies or now PG-13. It's much more than that. Much more than that. This could be used on another level as um, kind of an attitude check, you know. Um, sort of like that old song we sing, uh, If the skies above you are gray, you are feeling so blue. Hey, pack all your worries in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. I know that was a different song. I'm just mixing them together for emphasis. Take these words, though, and apply them to someone who perceives someone else as a problem. And he's saying, Uodia, when it comes to Syntyche, I want you to fix your thoughts on what's true, what's honorable, what's right and pure and lovely and admirable about her. Find something in her that's excellent and worthy of praise. If you find yourself in conflict with another person, or if you form general impressions, I don't trust this group of people, I don't trust this group of people, I'm not sure about what they're saying, I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world for us to give the benefit of the doubt and maybe even find something admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise. If nothing else, the one thing that we can say about every other human being we come into contact with is, this is a child of God who contains within him or her the image of the Creator God. That's a true statement. And we can at least begin there. That's not to say that we dismiss critical thinking. In fact, to be that fair-minded and to be that honest would be a better form of critical thinking than to dismiss people immediately or to dismiss situations immediately and say, you know what, I always prepare for the worst, but I hope for the best. And I haven't been uh, disappointed yet. It always turns out worse than I think. Uh, That kind of thinking never allows the truth to come out. If... uh, By the way, wisdom is the virtue, not vigilance. And wisdom considers all things. And thankfully, James promises us that if we want wisdom, we pray to God and He will give it to us. We're warned not to consider ourselves too highly, but to think about others. But what if we go too far with not considering ourselves too highly? Then we get into this second root cause of an internal negativity, which is um, hmm. what did I do, Brad? Well, they'll get to that next slide in just a moment. If you remember the list, number two was deflector shielding. This type of shielding can become a habit. It can become a habit in that we begin to 
put down others or we'll put down ourselves. And by putting down others or putting down ourselves, we think we're actually shielding ourselves, that we're protecting ourselves. You see this when, uh, when people want to get out ahead of the criticism that they think others are going to use against them. And it shows up in our language, and I ask you to pay attention to it. That when the first thing you say to people is, uh, Hey, I, uh, I know you're probably sick of me at this point, but I want to talk to you about something. Well, when did you become a mind reader and all of a sudden know that these people are sick of you? And if they are sick of you, why are you going to talk with them? And why are you apologizing for stuff you haven't done yet? If you ever notice stuff like that, chances are what you're doing is you're putting up your defense screen so that you took the hit on yourself before they will. I'd ask you to consider, who are you defending yourself against? The other way that works out is sometimes we direct that towards other people. And if we can put them down or dismiss them, then what we're able to do is we're able to say that their criticisms, now, well, you know, who's going to listen to somebody like that? I mean, you know, my goodness, they, they, uh, you know, look at their haircut. I mean, why would you listen to anyone like that? Uh. It might be a way of, it's always a way of defending ourselves, but we're either equalizing people or bringing people down or we're bringing ourselves down. And it's the one where we bring ourselves down that particularly concerns me. Because when we put ourselves down and minimize ourselves, sometimes it's a joke and sometimes it's not. And quite honestly, it becomes awkward for ourselves and for others. And we're also denying a greater reality. I want to show you a a tonic for this. I want you to keep this in mind. If you ever find this to be a habit that you have or just something that, that, that you find yourself doing, I like the confidence that Paul the Apostle had. Not an arrogance and not a confidence based in himself, but it was a confidence that he had rooted in God. You know, Paul the Apostle could have gone to every meeting and he could have said, well, you know, I've killed some of your family members here. I guess you're not happy to see me. And he could have made a a big issue out of that. And it was something that he addressed. When he would say to the Galatians, for example, once I was, but now by the grace of God I am. He knew who he was and the identity he had created for himself, but now... He found his self and his identity fully rooted in God. When that negativity comes up within you, and maybe you're going to criticize yourself before anybody else does, or maybe you've been taught to criticize yourself, the next thing I want you to tell yourself is, I'm a child of God. God created me. God will make me what I am. And if you need to be held accountable, just remember this. God will hold you accountable. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says to the Corinthians, and by the way, there's a group there that thinks that uh, uh, Paul is the greatest thing since Jesus Christ, and there's, uh, literally, and, 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 there's, and there's a group there that thinks that, that uh, Paul's just kind of a, you know, he's all scholarly and big talk and all that, but if you really want to know 
where the leadership is. You need to listen to guys like Cephas or Apollos, okay? So Paul knows that he's got his critics and he's got his fans. And what he says to them is, I don't care. You can think what you want. Now think about that. He's not, he's not just digging on them saying, I don't care what you think about me. You, you, you bunch of critical people. I don't care what you think about me. It doesn't bother me. I don't think about it at all. In fact, I wouldn't even be talking about it except you brought it up. He's saying, I'm not going to buy in to the assessments that others make of me, whether it's positive or negative, because, he says, I, I don't even consider myself innocent. I don't even trust my own judgment. The only judgment that counts is that of God. And if you think about it, look, critical thinking, doesn't that make the most sense? Everyone in this congregation thinks that you're swell. You think that you're okay. God says you've got a problem and you need to address that. Who wins the argument? God. Everyone thinks that you never follow through with your word and they don't trust you and they're tired of listening to you. You yourself are beating up on yourself and you're kind of down about this. You're getting older, more worn out. You're just not sure. God has a plan for you and he's got a lot of of uh, thought and intention about what he's going to do with you, who wins the argument? God. You can, if you'll say God, you always get it right, see? This is our tonic behind this kind of negativity, is focus on what God calls us to be and to do. Of course, sometimes we think that focusing on how to please God might be our way of manipulating and managing God to always like us. And it becomes tempting to turn this this activity to keep God happy into something that we can do. So if we go to worship the right way, if we do all of our worship stuff the right way, if we sing the songs the right way, if we give the right amount, if we are thinking the right thing when we partake of the Lord's Supper, then we know that when we leave here today, after we endure the sermon, that we will leave here today and God will be happy with us. And maybe we'll keep him from being mad just one more week. And if we do that well, and we find that we're doing it well, we might actually take pride in our own humility. And that is a very devious thing. It seems like a contradiction, but it can become so negatively focused that we begin to put down anything that doesn't fit our pattern of how it ought to be. We like things to stay a certain way because we've come to depend on that managing God and managing our faith and managing our religion as if we really could. It becomes a self-righteousness that we're not even aware of. So that we look at other groups and say, well, how could they worship God that way? Don't they know that that's wrong? At least we do it right. And What is replaced instead of true humility? True humility is replaced with a worrisome nitpicking. Jesus described it as straining at gnats and swallowing camels. He said, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
when he was addressing the Pharisees, and he said, oh, you, you've got this down. You're so humble. You go to your spice rack, and of your expensive spices, you measure out a tenth, and you give it to God. Why? Because you're managing your humility and your dedication to God. And he says, but in the meantime, you have forgotten things like justice and mercy. Um, this emphasis on religious appearance, Paul warns of that as well. When he writes to the Colossians and he says, and, and again, he's showing us the subtle problem with this. He talks about people who manage their, their humility, their piety, their worship life in a certain way, their outward religious appearance, and man, they've got it down. And maybe even they're feeling some resentment towards others who don't do it exactly like they do. Maybe there's even some conflict as people are fussing with one another over how it should really be done. And Paul says, those things have an appearance of wisdom because of the self-imposed religion, because of the false humility and the neglect of the body, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He says it doesn't penetrate beyond the appearance. And one of the indulgences of the flesh when you look at the works of the flesh, is anger, dissension, forms of negativity. If we are satisfied with only our outward accomplishment of religion, then we're never going to have the deeper kind of faith that's going to get us through the sort of negativity that could come up in combination with these others especially when there's some sort of um, hurt that we hang on to. We know that hanging on to hurts, hanging on to things that have been, ways we've been, been done wrong, we all understand that that's not healthy. And we also understand that letting go of it is not easy. And the last thing I want you to hear me saying is, Hey, if somebody's done you wrong, just forgive them. It's just that quick. No, it's not. I'm going to tell you the truth. It's not. It's right, but I didn't say it was easy. There's numerous reasons why this happens. Uh, sometimes we want justice. Sometimes we believe that life is unfair. Sometimes we believe that people have treated us unfairly and they've gotten away with it. And sometimes it's really a form of self-hatred. We hate how we feel because of what was done to us, or we hate the anger that we feel, and we just start to give in to it, and rather than direct our hatred towards, uh, or acknowledge that our hatred is inwardly focused, we blame it on others, but it continues to eat us up from inside. Scripture tells us that that sort of resentment, that sort of anger, holding on to that hurt, will lead to ingratitude. And, and common sense tells us that as well. <laughs> that if you've ever hold, held on to something that you resent for a long time, you focus on that more than you focus on the good things that God has given you. You focus more on the wrong that's been done to you rather than giving thanks for the good that you have. Resentment 
eats away at our ability to be a thankful people because we're focused on wrongs that we may not even be able to change. In Romans, <clears throat> Paul tells the church there, don't overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says when evil comes at us, and it's like he warned Cain, evil is sin is crouching at your door and it wants to have its way with you. We can be consumed by evil, whether it's been done to us or whether it's generated from within us. But the way we overcome the evil is with good. We find the opposite of what's been done. Sometimes we, we want to go to the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You understand that eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth was not meant to make us feel better? He hit me, I'm going to hit him. That'll settle everything. Well, then guess what? He will hit you right back. Or you're going to get two licks in where he only got one in. Now things are unfair again. And you can keep that on the level of uh, young people fighting, or you can put it on the national scene and everybody has to balance the scales. Um, there's a very wise man who said that uh, if we practiced an eye for an eye, we would live in a world of pirates. And uh, <laughs> eye patches, get it? Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is a law that was meant to limit revenge. It said, look, you're going to want revenge. You can't go any further than they went with you. The problem is, who judges that? Who decides that? Jesus says, you've heard this. I'm telling you, turn the other cheek. <clears throat> He's using hyperbole to say, what if we could find a way to overcome evil with good? And we rely on God for justice. Again, this often starts with a desire and a need for justice. A need for repentance on the part of those who do wrong. But at some point, the harm that others do to us, the harm that they do, ends up becoming nothing more than harm to us. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will be satisfied. This isn't just a pie-in-the-sky wish that says, oh, well, I'm just going to let God take care of it. it. It's actually calling us into a kingdom where we participate, not in our own sense of justice, or our own sense of fairness, but in a justice that's defined by God, where we understand, too, that just as much as He blesses us, He can hold things against us as well. These four subtle causes of negativity, and you may think of some more, and if you do, then God bless you. I'd love to hear it. I hope you'll share it with others, or I hope you'll mainly just share it with God and continue in prayer. But I mention these things to you because there's a better way, and that better way is to trust in God and to walk in the kind of confidence that Paul had knowing that God can make us the kind of people that we were always meant to be. And you're not alone. Most of us, we, we, we want to be better people. But sometimes that can become so frustrating. Or we may get disappointed with ourselves or others that it leads to negativity. Overcome that with good. 
God's opened the door to all of us, and he says, you can have a new life. So if you're willing to accept that invitation, I pray that you'll respond to it today. God has never sent us out alone, so we have one another that we can pray with. Like we do every Sunday, when we stand up and we sing this song, if there's any kind of encouragement or response that you need to make, now might be a good time. Let's stand. Let's sing together.